Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. We are now in the final session of the Footprints of God series. And I mean that final session for now. Uh, we are doing the Apostolic Fathers. This is with the creator and founder of the Footprints of God, Steve Ray, good friend of ours, um, doing amazing work. He's featuring in the uh, Lenten pilgrimage as well, going through the stations of the cross for us and, and did amazing job. So I hope you don't miss that, the Lenten pilgrimage, which is available at perusiamedia.com as well. But I hope you've been journeying with us all the way from Adam uh, all the way up until now. We're now in the church and now we're talking about the Apostolic Fathers. So let's let's now cross with Steve live. Steve, how are you doing? Doing good, thank you. Um, I've enjoyed this. This is show number nine. We did yes. the Old Testament Abraham, then Moses, then David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha. Then we did the New Testament, Mary, Jesus, Peter and Paul. Now we are stepping into the early church after the apostles with some guys called the apostolic fathers. That's because they knew the apostles or were right in that milieu, that time. And some of them even has said that they still had the words of the apostles ringing in their ears. Wow. Well, they, and, and that's why we call them the apostolic fathers, right? So um, they, they had a relationship with these um, apostles um, and and how I mean, let's start from the beginning. Who, what sort of uh, people we're talking about here, and how how long time period um, do we call apostolic fathers? Is it is it the first generation or second or third, or does it go for like a hundred years, two hundred years? Um, what sort of time period are we talking about? We have a category called church fathers, which goes for the first eight hundred years, and these okay. are the guys really established or defined the faith. I'm going to be doing a documentary probably in 2022. It was supposed to be done this year, but because of all the craziness, um, and it's going to be called the doctors of the church defining the faith. So the, these, th that church fathers covers about 800 years, but this group of apostolic fathers are also in the category of church fathers, but they have a special designation because they were in the first century or in my movie, I also included a generation, the next generation as well. So I gave a timeline, and I think you see it there. I, get, I gave you the timeline, and you yes. can put it up on your website. But it's on my website, and uh, when people see the show, if they go to catholicconvert.com, they can download this timeline. And it shows Jesus. And then I just have three of the apostles, Peter, Paul, and John. And then I have Clement who was converted by Peter in Rome, and Ignatius, who knew these guys as well. It's obvious that, or very, very likely or probable that he knew them in uh, Antioch. Paul lived to 67 AD, John lived to 100, Ignatius lived to 107, so he was right in that whole period. And then you have Justin Martyr, who just came right after those guys, even in the middle of their lives a little bit, and Polycarp and Irenaeus. And these are the five I did in my movie when I did the Apostolic Fathers, Clement, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Polycarp. These guys were there before the New Testament was put together. They were there, some of them, while John and Peter and Paul were still alive. And they learned about Christianity and the church from the words of the apostles or the apostolic tradition in that same generation before there was ever a New Testament. 
So why are they important? I just say this. I love these guys, Charbel. They are the ones that made me Catholic because I, when I was an evangelical and I started to look at the, the early church, I was trying to find a missing link because if I could find a missing link, I wouldn't have to be Catholic. In other words, we have here today the catechism, all right? And then there's a link that goes back next generation, generation, all the way back. And then the Catholic church says they've got the links are there all the way back to Jesus, and they could prove it. Well, I said, yeah, right. Let's see if you can prove it. So I went back and I, these are the guys that were the hinge figures. They were the ones between the apostles and the earliest Christians and the collection of the New Testament. So if these guys were Catholics, then I was toast. <laughs> I had to become Catholic because it was only a matter of intellectual honesty. I was convinced these guys were Protestants. But when I went back and read their writings, I found out that they were very Catholic. And my whole movie, Apostolic Fathers, which you sell at Perusia, and people can yes. get it from it's a 90-minute movie about these five guys. And if you have Protestant friends, get this movie and give it to them because it'll prove to them that the very, very first Christians, the ones who learned from the apostles themselves, were thoroughly Catholic. Wow. So that's who these guys are, and that's why they're important. And the timeline I have is uh is a simple timeline but it just shows you the proximity it like it, it, jesus the apostles and then you come in the apostolic fathers are linked right there and they some of them are quoting the apostles what they heard them say that's amazing amazing um we're talking about you know as a convert now uh you 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 looked at this were you um always uh you said you were skeptic and you said, if these guys are Catholic, I'm going to be Catholic. Were there any, what they were saying, um, did that disturb you uh, as a Protestant? I'm, I'm curious to know, like when you were reading the church fathers, when you're reading what they're saying, um, did that, you know, the, what, any specific examples of, of any doctrine or theology that oh you didn't, yeah. It's loaded with them. And my book, Crossing the Tiber, which people can also get from you is loaded with the quotes and the information that I gained from these guys and crossing the Tiber is my conversion story. And you'll see how much of an impact these guys had. Now, I, I had two emotions, two contradictory emotions going on inside of me in 1993. Janet and I both did. When we started to read them, we were trying to prove that they were Protestants. When I started to realize that they were not Protestants, that they were Catholics, then I got terrified. There was a sense of terror. Oh no, if these guys were really Catholics and that gives the Catholic church credibility. And if I'm honest, I'm gonna have to become a Catholic. So at one sense, it was like the, God was rattling my cage and it was scaring me. I'm, I don't wanna be a Catholic, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. But at the same hand, Charbel, I am a rebel at heart. I have always been countercultural. I never follow the crowd. I've always been a rebel. And I thought, started thinking to myself, you know, there's no way to be more countercultural in the whole world. There's no way to be more rebellious in the whole world than to become an authentic Catholic. Because if I'm a Catholic, I am the ultimate rebel. I am the ultimate counterculturalist. And then it got exciting to me. To become a Catholic was to be on a great adventure. And if it's really true, then this is going to be the coolest adventure ever. 
And uh, so I had those two competing in the, and the adventure side won. Wow. Um, praise God for that because uh, we've got <laughs> you for it. Uh, you've been an amazing asset to the church in a massive way. And um, in some ways I'd like, to, yeah, I won't jump ahead of myself, but you're almost like a, another modern day uh, apostolic <laughs> father for us. Um, oh my goodness. I don't know about that. <laughs> now in my movie, one of the things about these guys is that some of them were bishops. Ignatius was a bishop. Yes. Uh, Irenaeus was, Polycarp was, Justin Martyr was not. Clement was the not only a bishop, but the, the bishop of Rome. And in my movie, I it starts out with me driving a bulldozer. Okay. And I'm driving a bulldozer through a forest, knocking down trees, bushes. I'm driving through and I'm making a road and I back it up. And my point was, I jump off the bulldozer and I said, this is what the apostolic fathers had to do. When a bishop today becomes a bishop, he's already got his mansion. He's already got his cathedral. He's already got a staff. He's already got a budget. Everything is set up for him, right? Everything, the road is paved for him. That's right. But these guys, there was no bishop's mansion. There was no cathedral. It was illegal to become a Christian. These guys got killed almost every, let's see, all of them were martyred. We don't know if Irenaeus was martyred and Clement was martyred, but four out of five that I did were martyred. And wow. the first 30 popes were martyred. So these guys were really like with the machete, hacking their way through the jungle. They didn't have a road made for them. These guys had to build the road. They were the first ones. There was no cathedrals then. This was <clears throat> hacking their way through the vines and the bushes to clear the pathway for the bishops who were to come. So these guys were the trailblazers. They were tough men. They gave up their life and they knew when they became bishops that they would probably die for what they were doing. They, there was pretty much no doubt in their mind that when they were ordained a bishop, that there was a bullseye painted on their chest. In fact, in the movie, I even have a t-shirt with a bullseye on. And I said, this is what the early bishops wore because they were becoming a target for the Roman empire. So they were really heroic men. They handed on the faith. In the movie, it's entitled, handing on the faith, apostolic fathers, handing on the faith. And that's what they did. They were hinge figures. They heard it from the apostles and they handed it on to us. Had they not been there or had they failed in their job, you and I would now probably be speaking Arabic and worshiping Allah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's a very big call, but you're right. Um, th thanks to these figures who have really stood up and passed on the faith. You did put up a timeline on your blog, as you said, and, and it does visually demonstrate this. Um, uh, we'll put that on the screen um, as, as we speak here. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the chart really shows us how close they were to Jesus, and, and there's some overlap there. That some of them knew each other, right, according to this timeline that I can yes. see. In um, fact, if you, if you do it in genealogies, now, of course, th th this is not um, uh, genetic think way of thinking but just in proximity jesus mm. say he's the the father okay yes and he has his sons peter james and uh john and paul okay these guys that's the second generation jesus gets these guys started then peter john paul and john they they many of the others but at least clement and ignatius and polycarp they knew them personally 
Okay. And there's evidence that they taught those guys. Polycarp then knew a guy named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus writes in the second century, he was from 120 to 200 AD. He says, I remember as a youth when I used to sit at the feet of Polycarp and he told me all the things that he heard John say and that John told him all the things that he had heard and seen from Jesus. Wow. This is four generations. So Jesus taught John, John taught Polycarp, Polycarp taught Irenaeus, and Irenaeus opens it up and writes this wonderful thing called Against Heresies, where he said, I remember sitting at the feet of Polycarp, and Polycarp told us all the things that John saw Jesus do. This is how close they were. Now, my question comes in this way, Charbel. Why do I care so much when I was a Protestant? Why do I care so much what my pastor says today? When I can go back 2,000 years ago and hear what the pastors said of the first century, who knew the apostles? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is There's before the New Testament was written. Yeah. They, they were back then. Wow. The true pastors. <laughs> yep. um, now, they learned from the apostles long before the, there was a New Testament. Um, that could be a little, we, we need to remind people, yeah, the New Testament wasn't written uh, or compiled, I guess, and available to us in the form we have today for, for hundreds of years, wasn't it? Yep. At the end of the fourth century, it was put together. Wow. There was not wow. a, a list, a complete list until the end of the fourth century. There were some who started to try to put a list. There was a heretic named Marcion who only in the first centuries only accepted the writings of Luke. He didn't accept, and Paul, he didn't accept the other gospels. Uh, he thought that they all compromised with Judaism. Um, okay. so he only accepted the writings of Luke and a, and a few others. Now, then you get um, Athanasius in 373, I think it was. He came up with a list that's pretty close to what we have now, but that's even 373, and he's a doctor of the church. And even at that point, some people accepted the letter of Clement, who we're talking about today, he yes. wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Some accepted that as scripture. The Shepherd of Hermas was a writing, the Didache, and some almost universally rejected the book of Revelation, and some Hebrews, and 2nd and 3rd John, and 2nd Peter. So th there was no consensus up until the end of the fourth century. At the end of the fourth century, finally, the two, there were two synods that said these are the books that are allowed to be read at the liturgy. These can be read at the liturgy on Sunday. And these are the inspired word of God. Now, this is really unique because the Protestant, this is their Achilles heel. Because there is nothing. Jesus didn't leave a book. Jesus didn't say he was going to leave a book. The Old Testament was the inspired word of God, but even that wasn't finally collected until maybe 200 years into the Christian era. The wow. Jews had different lists of books. And so there was no reason to believe that there was going to be another book added to the Old Testament, which was inspired and infallible and errant word of God. That was something the church determined. And if you don't have the authority of the church, you don't have a New Testament. Wow, that's profound. That's spot on. Spot on. Um, I and remember the Protestants uh, today have a New Testament because they piggyback off the councils of the Catholic Church, but they don't want to admit that. They don't know it, probably. 
This is fascinating. Is there a difference? You said earlier uh, there is a difference between apostolic fathers and church fathers. Um, can you just clarify again? And, and, and do Protestants acknowledge both or just one? Or, or could you well, clarify? Protestants really in general don't know anything about their history. Okay. And I know that because I was one. Yes. And we knew maybe some of these guys' names, but I was never taught that they were Catholic bishops. They were just early Christian leaders. Mm, mm, yeah. I have a friend who went through evangelical seminary in Illinois. I don't remember the name. It's a very uh, famous evangelical Protestant seminary, but I can't think of the name right now. I'm getting old, Charbel, in my mind. <laughs> and uh, he said that he took, he studied patristics. That's the study of the fathers. And when he graduated later and he became Catholic, he wrote back and said, I want you to know to his professors, I'm thoroughly disgusted in the way you taught patristics, because even though I went through all of those classes, I was never told that these guys were Catholic bishops. You never told me who they really were. Mm. So as Protestants, they may know the names of Ignatius of Antioch or Clement of Rome. Most do not. I would guarantee that nine out of 10 Protestants have never heard those names, but sadly, most Catholics haven't either. I call this the black hole of church history. Nobody yes. knows about it. It's a, it's, it's a shrouded in darkness. It's shrouded in, um, in mystery. Nobody knows about it. For a Protestant, church history really begins with Martin Luther. That's where church history begins. For Catholics, the general Catholic, there is no such thing as church history, except there's been a whole lot of popes going all the way back. And mm -hmm. some are good popes and some are bad popes. And well, well, they had um, big churches and inquisitions and things. But yeah, most Catholics don't know their history either. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's yes. why you were there, Charbel, is you're trying to educate Catholics so they understand who they are, what their genealogy is, where they came from, what their history is, so they can be good Catholics. Because you need roots. Amen. If you don't have roots, you can't, the tree can't grow. And this is what we're talking about, roots. So we have the, the fathers of the church, and, and more and more Protestants are wanting to learn about them because they're realizing they are a ship without an anchor. There is no North Star. They're drifting, and they want to be attached back to their roots, but they don't know what their roots are. So there's a lot of them who are starting to go back and learn about these early apostolic fathers and church fathers. But I'm, I know one book I have by an evangelical Protestant writer, and he says that we're only going to discuss their lives, but not their problematic passages. The problematic <laughs> passages are their Catholicness, where they talk and expose that they're Catholic. So the, the, the apostolic fathers, I'm going to go through a list of them here. And these yes. are really the first generation or even the second kind of overlapping generation. Okay. So like I said, Jesus taught John. John taught Polycarp. Polycarp taught Irenaeus. So in my movie, I do Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, who were kind of like the second merged generation. You'll see in the chart, when people see the chart, they'll understand yes. what I'm talking about. So Ignatius of Antioch, he wrote seven letters. Every Catholic should know those letters. They are our family, heir, our heirloom. They are our history. Mm -hmm. They're, they're the, in the family handbook. We should know that his letters he wrote to the churches of Asia as he was going across to be eaten by lions. And he was in the Colosseum eaten by lions in 106, 107 AD. Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, who was a pagan Roman, who became a Christian under Peter's preaching, and then he became the fourth pope. Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement. 
And he okay. wrote a letter in 60 to 90 AD, probably 60 AD to the Corinthians. And it is thoroughly Catholic. Polycarp of Smyrna. I always thought Polycarp was a funny name. You know, here we have carp, yeah. fish, and poly means many. So what is his name? Many fish? What's that kind of, who'd <laughs> name their kid many fish? But in Greek, carp means fruit. So his mother, knowing as a Christian, named him Polycarp, much fruit, because she was uh -huh. expecting a lot from him. And she got what she expected. He was actually by the Romans in all of Asia Minor, which is Turkey of today. They said, he is the destroyer of our gods. They hated him because he was against oh. Apollo and Zeus and Aphrodite. The, you know, he was the destroyer of the pagan gods. Then you come to, and, and, and he wrote a letter. We have a letter to, from him and a letter of Ignatius to him, and he died a martyr in Smyrna. And then there's Justin Martyr, who was a Greek philosopher who converted, and he died by having his head cut off in 165. Irenaeus of Lyon was from up in Gaul, which is kind of the France area of France today. And he was, I uh, wrote a marvelous book. And when he went to Rome once, when he came back, he found that his whole diocese, most of the Christians had been killed in the, in the, in the Colosseum. They'd been killed there, the martyrs of Lyon. And, that, and I do a lot, tell a lot of that story. And I go to all of their tombs and show how they died and things in, uh, in my movie. There's also, during this time of the Apostolic Fathers was the Didache, which is, Didache means teaching. And it is a teaching of how you are to live the Christian life that was written before even the end of the books. It was written in the first century, before John even wrote the Gospel of John. It was written before that. And that gives us, it says, when you take your sacrifice, when you come on Sunday morning for the sacrifice, meaning the Eucharist, when you offer the Eucharist, you confess your sins before you offer the sacrifice. Well, this is talking about the Eucharist being a sacrifice, the real body and blood of Christ. And what do we as Catholics do on Saturday? We go to confession first, right? Well, this is all the way from the first century. There's another writing called the Shepherd of Hermas. Then there's the Epistle of Barnabas, the Epistle of Diognetus, the pa uh, Fragments of Papias. These are all writings that we can add. You know what? If you want to meet these guys, you can meet them. They're still available for consultation. I sat in my living room and I had a meeting with all of these guys because I have their writings. And Janet and I sat there with their books and we met with one night Polycarp came in and we spent the whole week with him. And then we spent the whole week with Ignatius and we read everything. We asked him questions. He answered our questions through his writings. And I got to meet these guys in person through their writings. And that's why I'm Catholic today. These are the apostolic fathers who are a small group of the first century, early second century, who then are part of the bigger group of church fathers who make up the first eight centuries. They're the ones that defined the faith, the hinge figures. They're the ones that died so that you and I can be here today. They paid the price. They paved the way. Amen. Oh man, it's, I love how you said that. You know, you invite them in your living room. They're, they're real people. They are alive today, uh, as we know in there heaven. They they're with us. Um, yeah. And all those characters you mentioned are in the film as well, right? So the, the, yeah. in the film, you you actually go through their life as well. We can meet them uh, on camera, I guess. Guys, all five of these guys we're talking about that are on the timeline. Yes, I go to the places where they were born, Antioch. In, in Turkey today, just 10 miles from the Syrian border. Nablus is where uh, Justin Martyr was born. The other guys, Clement of Rome, I go to Rome for him, Ignatius of Antioch, 
Justin Martyr, I go to, uh, you know, we go to all the places where they lived and where they wrote from and where they died. And I show you how they died. Polycarp was burned at the stake in Smyrna, which is Izmir of Turkey today. In fact, just today we're talking about, because Turkey is open, I think I'm going to take a group to Turkey this June because it's open. Right. And uh, I, I want to, I've been to Turkey many, many times, but I want to do the whole tour of Turkey, the seven churches of of the uh, book of revelation that you know that in turkey and, and most of these guys are talking about here we're in turkey and rome but mm. if you say that israel is where christianity was born it grew up in turkey turkey is the second holy land john the apostle died there mary spent the end of her life there wow. four of, of paul's epistles were written to there the first eight ecumenical councils took place in turkey of today i mean it's just wow. rich with early church history what was it known for in the bible biblical times so turkey asia, today was asia minor asia and minor. ephesus was the kind of the capital it was right on the coast there of the mediterranean if you wanted to come into asia minor which is turkey today it's the size of okay. texas if you wanted to go into asia minor you'd come to ephesus usually and ephesus is a quarter of a million people live there very big city and wow. Paul lived there for two years, and he said while he was there, all of Asia heard the gospel because of him. Wow. <laughs> and this is also where Polycarp was from. He was just from north of there. And Ignatius of Antioch was in Syria, right over to the east, and he traveled across and wrote to the seven churches. John, when he was in Ephesus, he wrote to the seven churches of um, of, of um, Book of Revelation. Why did he write to those seven churches? Because that was his diocese. John was the Bishop of Ephesus, the main church, which was the capital of all of Asia Minor, 250,000 uh, uh, people. He was the bishop there. So all of those were his diocese. So when he got exiled out to the island of Patmos, he wrote letters to all of the bishops, his diocese, and told them what to do and what you guys are you've fallen away get back to your first love. that's what he did so this is turkey where a lot of these apostolic fathers came from or lived um they they were from what i call the second holy land which is turkey interesting were they uh inspired um would you call them inspired apostolic fathers or if not when uh do we consider them so why do we consider them so important if they're that's not inspired? interesting Interesting question, because if you talk to a Protestant about the church fathers or these guys, they say, well, they're not inspired. They're not mm -hmm. in the Bible. I have the Bible. That's all I need to worry about. I have mm -hmm. God's inspired word and the Holy Spirit lives in me and he's the author of the book. And so when I read it, the author lives in me and he helps me interpret it as I read it. See, it's this very skewed. It's a clever theory, but it doesn't work because uh it, it can't work. You need, you can't just have the Bible alone. That's another whole discussion. But I would have said that the apostolic fathers, the church fathers are not inspired. So I don't have to worry about them. They're no better than any other pastor. He can be right or wrong. Well, that's true. They can be right or wrong. But the fact is, is that they are an, this is why they're significant. They are an authentic witness to the apostolic teaching. Amen. They confirm it. The apostles wrote, books of the Bible. Not very many of them did, though, did they? We have nothing from Thomas. We have nothing from James the Apostle. James the Apostle was killed in Acts chapter 12. The James that we have now was not one of the apostles. He was the brother, the cousin of our Lord. 
Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. To this day, there's big arguments on who wrote Hebrews. Nobody can say that's an apostolic writing. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Jude. So we, and we've got Matthew wrote a gospel, and, but we have nothing from uh, James. Andrew never wrote a book, you know, so we don't have, but the ones who did write, what we do know is that they lived for a period of time and people watched them and they heard them, their word of mouth. They watched, they heard, the apostles were not interested in writing. They were interested in teaching. Yes. And they went around and they practiced it and they taught the churches and they appointed bishops. And that was called the apostolic succession. And it was the teaching they gave was the apostolic tradition. Paul says, follow the traditions that I left you. Second Thessalonians 2.15. 1 Corinthians 2.11.2 and 2 Corinthians 3.6. All these, you follow the traditions. So these early church fathers, the apostolic, they are authentic witnesses to the apostolic teaching and practice. So when they talk about the Eucharist or what they do on Sunday morning, they're explaining to you what the apostles showed them. This yeah. isn't speculation. When Ignatius of Antioch says, I'm going to, I got a quote here from him. I'm going to, I'm just going to read it here. Please. Assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. Offer is a term of sacrifice. Okay, this is a sacrifice. Assemble on the Lord's day, which is Sunday, not Saturday. Break the bread and offer the Eucharist, but first make confession for your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Here is someone who knew the apostolic teaching from the first century. He died at the end of the first century. So he makes certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, not Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal. Make sure that you observe one common Eucharist, for there is one body of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup of union with his blood and one single altar of sacrifice. Yeah. Alter. Catholic to me. I was just doing some studies. I just gave a new talk. Maybe you, maybe we could do it with you sometime. It was just called "Is the Mass Really a Sacrifice?" I just gave it for the first time in Texas last two weeks ago. And as I was doing that, I looked up the word "altar," and it is uh, "misbia" is the Hebrew word. "Misbia" is the word "altar," and That's it comes from the word "ziba." which means to sacrifice. So an altar is a place of sacrifice where something dies, where it's mm -hmm. slaughtered. So he says, and you have one single altar of sacrifice. In the Catholic church, it's an altar of sacrifice. Even also as there's one bishop and his clergy and his fellow deacons. Therefore, you'll assure that all things are done according to the will of God. But look at those, beware of those who have perverted notions about the grace of God who have come down to us and see how contrary to the mind of God they are. They even abstain from the Eucharist and the public liturgical prayers because they will not admit that the Eucharist is the self-same body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which flesh suffered for our sins and Jesus God raised from the dead. In other words, it is the same blood and body of Jesus that was on the cross is on your altar of sacrifice. And make sure that you have one altar in the Catholic Church. And that body and blood that you have there is the same body and blood that hung on the cross. Now, this is first century. Wow. And so wow. this is what happened to me, Charbel, when I started reading the these apostolic fathers. How could I? They didn't sound very Baptist to me. 
Where was the Baptist church in Nicaea? I want to talk to, I don't want to hear what these Catholics said. I want to talk to the Baptists that were in Rome. I want to talk to the Baptists that were in Ephesus. There weren't any Baptists in Ephesus. There weren't, there was the Catholic church. Amen. Wow. And on that note, I mean, that's powerful. That That's St. Ignatius so earlier. You um you wanted to you set out to try to convert or prove a friend wrong who who already yeah. uh, converted to the Catholic Church. Can you tell us more about that story? Uh, do we know who that friend was, or uh, is it a, someone that's well known? Or everybody is it, that everybody that knows the contemporary Catholic. Well, I don't know about in Australia, but his name is Al Cresta, uh-huh. and and he does a uh, show called uh, Al Cresta, the Afternoon with Al Cresta, and he's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant mind, and he brings the teaching of the catholic church he he's, he's like a lens of, of understanding the world today through the teaching of the catholic church and he's been my best friend since 1983 actually wow. 1984 back in the early 80s we were best friends back then and we homeschooled our kids together and he was a protestant pastor back then and he was a radio talk show host back in the 80s, but it was on Protestant radio. He had the number one talk show in Detroit, Michigan. Wow. Cresta from from the heart. And he used to come to our house at least two Sundays out of the month and spend the day with us because our kids, they're homeschooled together. And he lived in a bad part of Detroit and I lived out in the country. We had a pool and horses and mini Mm. bikes and stuff, you know, we had, so he'd bring his kids out there and him and I would just talk theology and Bible the whole time my wife and his wife would talk homeschooling one day in 1993 he said steve i uh my wife and i have been praying about it we've been thinking about it we've decided to join the catholic church (laughs) and i said hell that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard in my life you're way too smart to be a catholic and so janet and i said we're not going to talk to him about it we'll stay friends but we're going to convince him that he's wrong and um I figured if we, I couldn't go to the Bible to prove he is wrong because he knew the Bible as well as I did. We've spent our whole friendship discussing and debating and teaching the Bible. So, but I'm going to go back to the very first Christians and prove to Al that the very first Christians were really Protestant and that he joined a religion based on the traditions of men. That's why I started reading these guys. And when I started reading them, I said, oh my goodness, Al was right. Now what am I going to do? And uh, over a period of time, and there's some good books, by the way, if people want. First of all, I, I would get my book, Crossing the Tiber, because in that book, yes. I go through how this transition took place in our mind. And i quoting all of these guys we're talking about. I quote them all the way through this middle half of the book is all on baptism and how these guys believe that baptism was how you get born again. It was through water baptism, washed away sins. Infants were baptized. All of this was from the first centuries. And the last third of the book is all about the Eucharist. I use those as test cases, how the Eucharist was taught by the early Christians. And that just totally rattled my cage, rocked our world, so to speak. So, and then there's other good books too. um, There's a lot of, I know Jimmy Aiken has a great book called um, The Fathers Know Best, I think it is. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It's an excellent book on the fathers. There's another one, a three-volume set called Jurgens, And I use that a lot because it has a scripture reference where you can look up scripture and then see what the fathers said about that passage of scripture. Okay. Or wow. you can look up by topic, Eucharist, real presence, born again, whatever. And it takes you to the passages of the very first fathers of the church. It's a very, it's called Jurgens. It's called the faith of our fathers. 
by Jurgen, J-U-R-G-E-N. That's a really wow. good set. Another one is called Early Christian Writings, um, which was translated by Staniforth. It's just a simple book, but it's that's the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. Those are the ones we're talking about today. Um, it has Ignatius of Antioch's letters and Clement's letter and Polycarp's and so on. Amazing. These guys are talking. I mean, they clearly... I Catholic, they weren't Protestant, these uh, church fathers. I mean, talking about the Eucharist, the way they are, the sacrifice, bishops, it's all, it's all there in that quote. Um, I, I'm, I'm keen to know, I mean, you, you say that uh, tradition is important and you subtitled the documentary Handing on the Faith. Um, can you tell us a bit more why? Well, the, we believe as Catholics, because we know it, it's the only way it can work is that God has given us divine revelation. We got a bunch of gray matter in between our ears mm -hmm. called a brain. Okay. Yep. And it can only come up with so much stuff. I mean, it can't figure out everything and very, very limited. And all of our senses, we only have five, everything we know and perceive about things around us come from smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting, and touching. Five senses. Mm -hmm. Those are like the five gates into our brain. And then you've got this gray matter, a bunch of cells up here with a bunch of electronics running through them. And that's processing the things that we perceive with our five senses, okay? And I can't see angels. My five senses are totally incapable of fi figuring those things out. I can't... I, I'm limited. I can figure out some things, but I can't figure, I know two plus two is four, but <laughs> I don't know that there's a Trinity because of my five senses. I can't, I don't know that Jesus had two natures. There's a lot of things I don't know. So what the church understands is that God gave us a revelation and it's in two parts. It's like one big spring of water that flows in two valleys. One is called Revelation Scripture, and the other is Sacred Tradition, and both of them are the revelation of God. Even the Bible itself, we wouldn't have it if there wasn't the tradition. It was the tradition that determined which ones of the books belonged in the Bible, and then you have a third category. It's like a three-legged stool, and I do this in my movie, Apostolic Fathers. I have a three-legged stool, and I'm sitting on it, actually, when I'm talking, <laughs> And I say on this, I'm sitting on the three-legged stool and said the first one is scripture and sacred tradition. And the third one is the magisterium, the official interpreters of scripture. Those three are necessary. You lose one, you lose the other two. Well, I say, I pick up my stool and I say, well, you know, the uh, Martin Luther and Bucer and Melanchthon and Zwingli and all these guys. 500 years ago, I said, we don't need the magisterium. And they rip that leg off the stool and they throw it away. And we don't need the sacred tradition. It's a man-made tradition. They grip that leg off and they throw it away. So what do they have left? A one-legged stool. And I put the stool down and sit on it. And in the movie, I go, and I crash over backwards. And I fall on my butt. I land on my butt. And I said, you know what? You got to have three legs of a stool before it's going to stand. And God gave the church a three-legged stool. And without the three legs, it can't stand. So that's what Moses had when he came down from the mountain. He had the word of God inscribed in stone. He had the oral Torah. That's what the Jews called it. The things that Moses knew that he didn't write down, but they knew and they practiced it. And they had Moses's teaching authority. In fact, the readings of the scriptures today in the gospels were the scribes and Pharisees sit in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you. 
That was Moses's authority to teach. So they had the three-legged mm. stool. Then we're the new Israel. We still are. Do you think we'd have a whole totally new structure of authority? Or if we're the new Israel, don't you think it would be similar to the old Israel? It is. It's still the three-legged stool. We still have written scripture. We have the sacred tradition and we have the chair of Peter, the magisterium. So that this is the reason why the handing on the faith in my title is important is because before there was ever a New Testament, before anybody knew there was going to be a New Testament, before anybody even conceived of there being a book of 27 writings, there was the apostolic succession of the bishops, and there was the apostolic tradition that was handed on. And those two things then determined later that there was a book. In other words, Jesus went up into heaven, and he was yes. received into a cloud. And he did not turn around and yell back down. Oh, guys, hey, don't forget to read my book. No. <laughs> what did Jesus leave behind? He left 12 men behind. Yes. Those 12 men went out and began to teach and practice the faith. That became the apostolic tradition. Then later, some of their writings, they, people, the church says, well, you know, these are writings. They are, uh, we perceive that they're from God. Therefore, we're going to put them in a book called the New Testament, 400 years later. There was first the magisterium, the teaching authority, the bishops, and then there was the tradition, and only later did we get the New Testament, 400 years later. And the New Testament is really, if I were to ask somebody, what is the New Testament? They would say, it's a book. No, it's not a book. The New Testament is the Eucharist. This mm -hmm. is the New Testament in my blood, of my blood, Jesus said. What is the New Testament? It is the Eucharist. Jesus held up the chalice with his blood and said, this is the new covenant, the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament is the Eucharist. The book is only called that because it describes the Eucharist. Wow. Wow. Thank this you. was all done after wow. these guys were there before the book was ever in anybody's hands. These guys carried the tradition of the apostles and they taught it and practiced it to the world before there was ever a book. Love it. Love it. We, we, we um, underestimate what price they paid for us. So can we, can we sort of go through that now? Uh, these men and women paid a price for us uh, to have the faith. Uh, what, what are we talking about here? Ignatius of Antioch, I'll go through each one of them. Ignatius of Antioch was arrested in Antioch, which was in Syria. It's in Turkey today, just 10 miles from the border. When we were there, ISIS came in. They were 10, mm. 12 miles away from us when we were there. And Antioch is where we were first called Christians. And so he was, a, he was the bishop there, the bishop of Antioch. The Romans came and arrested him and took him to Rome to kill him. Why do that? Because Anybody knows, you guys live in Australia, you have poisonous snakes. You want to kill the snake, do you cut off his tail? No. No, you cut off his head. You cut, if you cut off the head of the snake, the snake's dead. So you get the leaders of the church. You cut off the head. But it, that didn't stop it. They thought it would stop it, but it didn't stop it. So they got Ignatius. They took him all the way across. He was a successor of Peter. Peter was a bishop of Antioch for a while. Then there was Evodius, and then there was Ignatius. Ignatius succeeded Peter as a bishop of Antioch. So we're going to get him because it's the center of the Gentile church. Take him to Rome. They took him to the lions. On the way there, he wrote seven letters. You can read these letters. 
Then he wrote to Rome and he said, I am not writing to tell you what to do because you have been given the job by God to teach the world, already recognizing the primacy of Rome. He said, but some among you are wealthy and men of influence and you can stop my martyrdom, but I beg you not to because the lions are my way to God. Wow. I will become the wheat ground up by the teeth of the lion to become the pure bread of Christ. Very Eucharistic. Amazing. Do not stop them because they're my way to God. And he was. They put him in the Colosseum in 106 AD and they, the lions ripped him to shreds. The lions were starved down in the chambers below. They were hungry. They kept them starving so that when they came up, they see, when they saw Ignatius, the lions saw red meat. Ignatius saw the lions. He saw his way to God and they met. And before long, Ignatius was in their stomach physically, but he was in heaven. And it said the believers collected the bones and they carried them on their shoulders wrapped in purple cloth as they carried a champion out of the sports arena because he had been victorious to the end. He had not caved in. Polycarp, 86 years old. The emperor, the governor called him in Smyrna, which is in Turkey today, Izmir, Turkey. I've been there. I've seen his relics, his bones in the sacristy in the church there. And they, his, the governor said to him, Rusticus, I think. No, Rusticus is Justin Martyr. He said to him, save yourself. You're an old man. I'll give you a chance to recant and walk away and deny your Christ. Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served him and my God has done me no harm. Why would I turn my back on him now? Yeah. But you're an old man. Give up your faith. I am a Christian, he said. And they burned him at the stake, but he didn't burn. They, there's this eyewitness accounts that wrote this, and you can still read them today, that the flames engulfed him like a sail, and they smelled the smell of burning bread, of baking bread. They couldn't get near him, and the fires died down. And when the fires died down enough, the soldiers are finally able to get close enough to stab him with a knife and kill him that way. And then the blood put out the fire. And they burned him, and then the believers also collected his bones. And it said they collected his bones and treated them as more precious than silver and gold and precious stones. That's the end of Polycarp. And in the movie, by the way, we use a technology where I'm actually standing on a pile of wood, and I'm burning in the flames, and I'm reciting the prayer that Polycarp recited as he was burned at the stake. Irenaeus, we don't think that he was, we don't know that he died a martyr, but he, his bishop was in his 80s, 90s even, and his bishop was killed, put in prison and beaten and died in prison. And there was a uh, 155, I think there was, and it was in Lyon, France of today. You can still see the stadium, the arena there. It was discovered in 1950s. And he, the Christians were killed at the stake. And some of the most, if you read Eusebius's Church of the His, History of the Church by Eusebius, 325, he wrote it. You can hear some of the most heroic martyrs of all time. He tells a long description of one woman named um, Blandina. They tortured her at the stake for a whole day until the soldiers were worn out and exhausted. 
And then they threw her in prison and came back and did it again. They stripped her naked and just did everything that they could to abuse her and to cut her. And uh, finally, they ended up throwing her into the arena for bulls to throw around with their horns until she died. But the whole time she was saying, I am a Christian. What wrong have I done? And calling out to all the others, like the mother, they said, she was like the mother saying, don't deny the Lord, stay faithful. Don't give in the pain for a moment, but everlasting glory. And she was calling out to all the other martyrs and they all died. And while this was happening, Irenaeus was in Rome meeting with the Bishop of Rome at the time. And when he came back, he took the place of Bishop after his Bishop had died which was a very courageous thing to do back then because you're putting a bullseye on your chest. We don't think that he, now Clement of Rome, he was taken up to the Black Sea and he, the, up into the Baltics and he was thrown into the sea with an anchor tied to him and drowned. And Justin Martyr, he was beheaded and his students were all beheaded as well. So this is what these guys suffered for the faith, but had they not done that, you and I wouldn't be here today. It's not true. Thank God for them and their, their courage. What a message for us today, Steve, uh, more than ever um, in the culture we're living in now where it is becoming so anti-Catholic, so anti-Christian. Um, we, what's your message now to Catholics around the world who may be um, struggling right now to show their faith, uh, to, to share their faith, who are being silenced? Um, what's the message for us in this current culture we're living in? To be bold and never to back down. Jesus mm. said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. And he also said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose a soul? And these fathers, are, these uh, apostolic fathers taught us that martyrdom is the way to God. And there are many martyrs today in the, in the 20th century, supposedly the most enlightened scientific intelligent century of all, there were more martyrs than in all 1900 years previously. So if you take all the way from the first century to the 1800s, there were, I don't know how many were martyred, but in the 20th century, which I grew up in and lived in, yes, they, I was born in 1954, right in the middle of the second century, more martyrs for Christ we're in that hundred years and in all the 1900 years previously put together. Wow. And there's many today too, mostly in Muslim countries. Don't ever mm. think Islam is a religion of peace. More Christians are suffering and dying right now in Muslim countries and in communist countries like North Korea and China. Yes. And now we're going to, I would have never dreamed it 10 years ago, Charbel, but we're facing now in the United States and in the Western world, it's coming our way now. I would have never dreamed that we'd be flirting with Marxism in the United States, Marxist ideas, Marxist forms of government and agitation, and we are. There's still a lot of good people here, but we are now seeing Marxism on the horizon. And the first ones that Marxists get rid of is the Christians, because we have a principle that we can stand on that's above the government. We have the word of God. We have the church, which is called, which depends upon a higher authority than the government. Marxists and all of these other isms want the government to be the highest form of authority. They're the ones that are the top. They call Christians say no. You're second only. I'm a good citizen, but my first allegiance is to God. I'm a citizen of heaven first and a citizen of the United States only second. My primary citizenship is of heaven. So we have around the world, whether you're in Australia or the United States or anywhere else, 
our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And like I say to my kids, four kids and 18 grandkids, I say to my kids, I want you to raise my grandchildren to be martyrs. And Maria Faustina says, but grandpa, why do you want us all to die? Yeah. I say, Maria, I don't yeah. want you all to die, but I want you to know there's something worth dying for. Yes. Don't ever deny Jesus Christ or his church. Do not ever be silenced. There's a cancel culture. Do not be canceled. Speak out. Don't be shy. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If we're shy and we don't speak out, who will? Mm -hmm. We have a voice. And while we still have the freedoms that we have in Australia and the United States and other places, use those freedoms well while you have them because they're slowly slipping away. Amen. So the fathers of the church gave us an example. They showed us how to do it. If we want to convert the world the way they did, they converted the world. In 300 years, they turned that pagan culture into a Christian culture. How did they do it? Because they really, really, really believed what yeah. they knew to be true. And they believed it enough to live it. And they believed it enough to die for it. And if we don't have that same commitment, we'll never convert the world. We won't convert our own kids. Amen. Very well said. Thank you very much. And that's a, that's, we'll close on that note. Um, I think uh, that's a great takeaway for all of us. Um, and we never take our faith for granted. Never take these early church fathers for granted. Thank God for them. And let's, let's really pass on the faith, hand it on. We've got the responsibility now as Catholics to do the same. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, You're welcome. Try to get that movie out to people because it will show Protestants that the early church was Catholic and it'll make Catholics proud to be Catholic and ready to start fighting for their, for their faith and their church. So fitting. Uh, this is now episode nine um, from a 10-part series. We have completed the nine months now uh, of, of going through them at the moment What's of the that? nine that are available apostolic fathers what we'll do is um I'll, I'll we'll package all this together so that way people can see them chronologically um and they'll see the, this interview alongside the actual movies and i highly encourage people get the dvds get them uh, they're available at perusiamedia.com uh, check them out i highly recommend visiting uh, steve's website as well catholicconvert.com uh, and you'll see as well all the activities he's involved in um and steve we can wait what two years hopefully we'll be able to get less than episode 10. I had planned to film it this year. I'm glad that I canceled it now because all those countries are shut down. Yeah. yeah. So um, probably 2023 is my guess when I'll get the doctors of the church and then I'll have all 10 of them done. And then I can die and go at peace be with the Lord. I'll have my <laughs> magnus opus completed. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for saying yes to God and doing this. Uh, the world is um, benefiting from this, Catholics around the world, and I certainly have, and my children as well. And, and thank you for your hard efforts in it. Um, you are in our prayers. Keep going, and, and, I, and, and please don't stop those pilgrimages to the Holy Land. We hope that once things open up, you'll be able to get there again and, and start taking pilgrimage. September. I want to come with you. <laughs> so September, we got a trip going in September already. Almost the second bus is almost full. And then in November and December too. And I'm Excellent. pretty sure those will go. Excellent. So doors are opening now. Let's get, get on there, go to the website. So if they went to CatholicConvert.com, they'll get all the information as well for the others. There's a, 
there's a big uh, banner at the top for pilgrimages. Click on there. It shows you all our pilgrimages. You can also go on a virtual pilgrimage. All of the pilgrimages I've done in the last 10 years, that's over a hundred of them. Wow. I have two hour movies made. So you can actually watch a two hour movie of every single one of those to Ireland, to Poland, to Israel, to Guadalupe, to all these places. You can actually go on a virtual video pilgrimage to all of those places with us. This year we have going th three to Israel in the fall. We have Ireland, we have a St. Paul cruise, and we have Lords and Fatima. And it looks wow. like we're going to go to Turkey as well. Praise God. That's a jam-packed uh, second half of the year. So God bless you. Well, th thank you again. Um, pray for us, praying for you, um, and, and, and enjoying the, the Lenten pilgrimage. So um, let, let's do a lot more together. Thank you, Steve. Good. Thank you, Charbel. God bless you. Thank you, everyone. God bless everyone, and take care. We'll be in touch very soon. Bye-bye.